All right, so we are doing uh, the Romans Road tonight. I do want to start with a little introduction on something I've been talking about. So I spoke twice this past weekend. I traveled to Kansas City and then over to Lawrence, Kansas, which is the home of the Jayhawks, if anyone keeps up with that sort of thing. They lost their homecoming game. When you're really bad at football, you play good teams, which is interesting. So they played Oklahoma State and they got beat. But anyway, it was fun being there. Um, I actually have been sick and so I lost my voice. So that's been a weird thing. I'm, I don't know that I've really lost my voice before. So it's, it's just coming back. Um, I recorded a podcast this afternoon. So I, I think I gave up most of my good voice. So we've got what's left over. But one of the, uh, the lecture that I spoke on was on happiness and how dental professionals in particular are subject to a lot of really bad things. So we have a higher suicide rate. We die from cardiovascular disease a lot more often than uh, white collar workers and just normal people for a lot of different reasons. You're not most of you dentists, so we won't go into all that. You would have enjoyed the, uh, the talk, I'm sure. Um, but I do want to talk about something around that kind of concept. And uh, so stress and depression and happiness. Um, and so I'm going to go into some of that. I promise it'll make some sense, okay? And then we'll kind of bring this back into the Romans road. Um, I guess as a starter, it, when, you, when you speak, it's always a good idea to get on the same page. I think the interesting thing about happiness is, is that we might agree on kind of what it is, but very few of us would agree in terms of how to get happy or to find happiness. Um, and so I guess in some ways we probably wouldn't agree. But this is like a combination of many definitions. Um, but happiness is a sense of well-being, joy, or contentment. Happiness is the opposite of sadness. And when people are successful or safe or lucky, they tend to feel happiness. Whenever doing something causes happiness, people usually want to do more of it. Okay. So we could right now kind of strike the difference or the contrast between kind of cultural happiness and like spiritual happiness. You could strike a difference between happiness, which is short term sometimes, and joy, which is more long term. There's a lot of conversations that could be had, but just in a general sense, all of people ever would agree that they'd rather be happy than sad. Um, it's been sort of the goal, even since Aristotle, Aristotle called it the, the chief good or you know, the purpose of life basically. Um, and then the question that I uh, raise here is, do you feel like people are more or less happy today than they were 50 years ago? What's your gut reaction to that? You feel like people are more happy or less happy? Less. Okay. Almost without fail, people say less. Now, what do we really know about how happy people were 50 years ago? That's a whole other conversation because <laughs> none of us were here. Um, and I did run into one older gentleman after doing this in Jackson. He said, well, 50 years ago, I was studying for boards and I didn't have, well, he said something I won't say. He said, and I had no money and I, my wife and I were dating and she was traveling. He's like, I, I'm a lot happier now. I was like, okay, well, you're the one guy that's happier now. What about, what about 10 years? You think people are more or less happy now than they were 10 years ago? Yeah, maybe the same. Okay, so for 50 years, the predominant answer is less. Maybe we don't have a strong feeling about 10, so I'll take out 10 next time. Um, I think what I would say is, is that, and David says this all the time, there's never been a point in human history where people have been more wealthy and healthier than right now. Um, and yet, I don't know that this is necessarily the case, but at least from 50 years ago to now, people are certainly less happy. I think statistically that bears out. We'll look at some of that. It's hard to find statistics on happiness because again, we can't quite agree on what that means. We can look at some statistics around that and I think we can come to the conclusion that people are in fact less happy, certainly today than they were 50 years ago. 
Um, so here is a little bit of uh, statistics. Again, some of this is a little bit dated, but I think it's helpful. Uh, so this is the World Health Organization. Um, and, and granted, we're going to look at from 1990 to, to, to relatively uh, 2013. More people have come about during that time, but this outpaces it. But in 1990, there were 416 million people with depression and anxiety worldwide. And just 23 years later, that number had increased to 615 million. Uh, so there are a lot more people uh, diagnosed with that. And then also American Journal of Psychiatry, this is from 91 to 2002, major depression uh, increased. It's almost, uh, it's more than two times. Um, this is a really telling graph. This is actually suicide rate, okay? And what you'll see here is that in every state except for one, it's a little hard to read on this TV, but the one state, and I can't point to it on the TV, but that's blue is Nevada. That's the only state that suicide rates have not increased uh, from the years of 99 to 2016. So in literally every other state, and I don't know what's special about Nevada, okay? I don't know if it's the casinos make you happy. I don't think that's really what it is, but um, maybe you think there's always a chance. I don't know. Um, but literally every other state, suicide rates have gone up, which isn't that really sad. Um, and in fact, in I think it's over half of them, the suicide rates have gone up more than 30%, okay? There's 45,000 suicides in 2016 alone. Um, and then these two people, so you probably know who they are. These are probably two of the more famous people to have committed suicide within the last six months. Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. There's been others. There was the, the uh, really successful uh, DJ Avicii. Uh, recently, Mac Miller, who's a rapper, he, he rapped a lot about suicide on his recent album. He overdosed, but you know, kind of the same thing. Obviously, it's not just famous people. There's a lot of other people, but those are the ones that kind of make it seem more relevant and seem more commonplace. Um, it's just clear, I guess, from all this that some people don't want to live in this world anymore, which is depressing. The one thing I would just say as an aside is that when you think about like jobs that you would want to have, like if you could wish you know, or manifest a job for yourself, what job would you pick different than Anthony Bourdain's? Uh, at least for me, as someone who loves food, loves to travel, he got to travel everywhere in the world he could ever want to go and eat all the best food in the world. There's a famous picture of him sitting down to eat a sandwich with Obama. I mean, he got to hang out with famous people. He had a TV show. Everybody knew who he was. I mean, seemingly about as good of a job as you could possibly ask for. And he was miserable um, to the extent that you know, he committed suicide. I had substance abuse issues as well. Um, all right, so obviously a serious issue. It's a tough one to like cold open with. But um, let me ask this question and kind of give the answer that comes to mind. Uh, what's the answer that most people give for why people commit suicide? No, no answer. No. No. I mean, stress, anxiety. Yeah. They don't feel like they're worth anything. I think those are all good. One thing, one thing that had come to my mind, and maybe I'm off base because I think these are like actually true answers, is I hear a lot of times that it's a mental health issue. I uh, obviously hear that of school shootings. That's like the only thing they ever say is, oh, it's a mental health issue. I think of suicide, you hear that sometimes too. Um, what's interesting, I think a lot of the answers you gave are, are really kind of what it was. Um, the CDC, they did a study and they found that suicide actually happens most often without warning. 54% uh, of the people who killed themselves did not previously have a known mental health issue. 
Um, and so you can read it on, on the board here. But instead, these folks were suffering from other issues such as relationship problems, substance misuse, physical health problems, job or financial problems, and recent crises or things that were coming up in their lives that they were anticipating. Um, and so it's almost like things that hit them maybe out of left field and they just couldn't cope with it. I think obviously some of this would be more long-standing things, maybe some mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Um, what experts would agree with is, is that we need to learn how to process loss and how to deal with emotions um, so that we can prevent suicide. I do want to show kind of like when we're thinking about, because there is obviously going to be a spiritual answer to this question, that it is what's going to lead us to the Romans road. I think it's interesting to always look at, well, what is, what is our culture saying? Like, what are the best of the best in our culture who study these issues, who go to school sort of like you guys do, to study the epidemiology of these things? And what is their conclusion? Well, and I hate to pick on her, but this is Professor Julie Serrell. She's president of the American Association of Suicidology. And uh, she described having a safety plan. And this is what she said. This is not taken out of context, but here you go. Um, if things go bad in your life, what do you do? Are there things you can do to distract yourself in the moment? Can you look at pictures of your kids or watch funny cat videos? Those funny cat videos can't help someone uh, alive, but they can calm people down to then use other coping strategies. Um, and so this is really a, like a quote I found and looking for kind of an answer as to like, what should we do? I don't think it's probably her entire statement on how we stop suicide, but it was like a summary statement in an article that I read that was talking about suicide as an issue, um, was to watch funny cat videos in part. Um, and I guess my question when I first read this in all caps was, is the best answer we have to suicide and depression funny cat videos? Um, and I guess my immediate answer to that is I hope not. Um, and so I hope that we have an answer that's better to depression and suicide and these serious like mental health issues that exist than, than cat videos or distraction. Um, and so as we, we kind of head into this discussion on Romans, what I'm faced with is, you know, again, we, we live in the healthiest and the wealthiest time ever in human history, and yet we have increasingly more people that are depressed and suicidal and don't want to live on this earth. And it's crazy when you think about first century Rome and the people that were reading Romans. And so as we come back down to earth and we think about Romans, like what they were dealing with as they were being sent this letter and as they were hearing it read aloud, um, it's just interesting because these are people that were persecuted, most of whom had been kicked out of Rome or were shortly about to be kicked out of Rome or lit on fire <laughs> or something. Um, and I'm sure some of them were depressed and maybe suicidal, um, but I would, I would venture that it was less than today. Um, and so I would also say that there is something in the message of Paul that was inspiring then to give people hope such that they wouldn't do that that should also be inspiring now. Um, so, funniest cat videos, okay. So this, this is our answer. Sorry, I forgot to advance the slide. Um, and I think the big question is, does Christianity offer a better solution than you know, funny cat videos or medicine or what, whatever the you know, direct answer may be? So I'm going to pass the mic to David. So we're going to be doing this tonight a few times. Okay, yeah, we'll just pass it back and forth. So I think that's a good kind of setup for a lot of um, ideas. But one idea is to think about how is your emotional health, how does your spirituality play into that in your your worldview, your religious orientation. And so obviously Romans is seeking to answer some of those questions at a, at a deep level. Before I jump in, I do want <clears throat> to just make like a kind of a weird plea. I, I don't think this is, I don't know, but hopefully everybody in here is 
uh, emotionally stable. Nobody's thinking about harming themselves or others. But uh, it is true. You, every year you hear one or two med students or dental students harm themselves. And so just kind of just to be like direct, I just want to ask you guys if some if you're thinking about doing something something like that, just come come talk to one of us first. I just I want you to promise yourself that before you hurt yourself because school didn't work out, you didn't match where you wanted to, you you failed a test, you're not sure you're gonna make it in school. Come talk to me and let's let's make sure we're on the on the same page about what's important in life and. Let me kind of love on you or let's love on you before you make a, a permanent mistake uh, because of a temporary problem. That being said, Romans is a profound book, I think, that speaks not just to our emotional needs and the needs of the moment, but to the deepest needs we have as humans. So it answers questions not just for this week, not just for this year, but like for, for decades and really for millennia. These, the, the answer to these questions will matter 10,000 years from now. The grade you make on your anatomy test will not. And so we're going to talk in the next 10 or 15 minutes about things that matter. So the theme verse for Romans is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So uh, we talk, have talked a lot about the Apostle Paul. He was a not just a, a strong Christian man, but really a kind of a first-rate philosopher. He wrote at a level that um, you could respect even if you're not maybe a, a follower of what he taught, but you'd recognize, man, this guy's a brilliant guy. So his English teacher, I think, would be proud of him because right in the first chapter, he's got a good thesis statement that kind of lays out his argument for the rest of Romans. So ch- chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So last week we kind of broke that verse down in detail. But that's a good one to read uh, fairly regularly and kind of think about word by word what does that verse mean. We've also talked about how Romans is could be thought of, this masterpiece can be thought of kind of like a symphony. It's this beautiful kind of poetic argument that begins at the beginning and spends 16 chapters developing. It's really a symphony with four movements, and so we'll just kind of remind ourselves of what these four movements are. Romans 1 through 4 is the first movement, and the key theme there is the gospel reveals God's righteousness. So there's this huge idea in Paul's theology that God is righteous. He's true to his character. And so God reveals the trueness of his character in the gospel. And what he means by that is this contrast between God's holiness, his needing to punish sin and be separate from sin, and God's love, the necessity of his character to love sinners. So how does God remain true to both of those ideas within himself? Because they seem to be in conflict. God needs to be separate from David the sinner, but God also unconditionally unconditionally loves David the sinner. And so really you can think about the theme of Romans is how does God preserve his righteousness within himself? There's these two contradictory ideas. So um, we are saved by grace. So we're saved as a gift by grace. We talked about this last year, but grace, you can think about grace as getting something you don't deserve. So we are saved by grace. It's something we don't deserve through faith in Christ. So that's a kind of a famous phrase of the Reformation. They'd say that the the solos, and so those are three of the five solos. So um, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Then the second movement is Romans 5 through 8. And so this is the idea that gospel creates a new humanity. So this is something Paul is very interested in, interested in, which is the universality of the gospel. So not that people groups don't matter, 
at all, because they do. That's, that's kind of part of the uh, idea behind the Great Commission, to go to all nations, all people groups. But that a new people group is being made that's more important than those others. So you may um, have identity with a nation or a country or a culture or a language or an ethnicity. And I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. In fact, I think Paul would say that those those um, identities matter. But the new identity, the new people that matters most is the new people that we are in Christ. So a new humanity that's being transformed by the Spirit. So we're a humanity that's being transformed into something better than what we were. Then there's Romans 9-11, through 11, which uh, are super confusing, and everybody kind of disagrees about it. And you can't, like, it's like... Um, if you go to like any Christian college and walk down like the dorm room at 2 a.m., there's going to be like a couple of guys sitting up arguing about what happened, what Romans 9 through 11 mean. That's just kind of like huge, like controversial thing. Christians have been either fighting wars about it. Now we just argue in the dorm about it. So that's an improvement. Uh, but there's a lot of conflict about what those verses mean. But the point is <clears throat> that God promised Israel that all Israel will be saved. And so how does that play out that all Israel is saved? There's a couple different ways to read it. Um, but I think an important point is that, that those of us who have faith in Christ are grafted into the people of Israel. So God is keeping His Old Testament promises. All Israel is saved. And we as Christians are not a new people group. We're part of Israel. We are grafted into the people of Israel. And then finally is the, um, the fourth movement in Romans. So this is Romans 12 through 16. And this is the gospel unifies the church. So in every one of Paul's letters, he spends at least a chapter, sometimes multiple chapters, talking about how Christians should be one. And so I think that's something we can think about in here. We are in a group filled with people that have different interests. Obviously, there's different genders in the room. There's different political beliefs in the room. There's different dreams and ambitions in the room. There's different opinions about all kinds of things, and that's okay. We don't all have to be the same, but we do have to be unified about what matters most, and that's hard. That's hard because there's all kinds of things from built into our DNA that kind of force us to be tribal that even play into like our emotions and our history. So there's all kinds of reasons that we want to try to create groups and divisions even amongst ourselves, a group of Christians here trying to study the Bible. And Paul's message is that the way to achieve unity is to put your preferences secondary to what matters most. And so that's the, the fourth movement. Oh, I think you're still up. Oh, oh this discussion question. All right, so let's, uh, let's just do this brief discussion question. I'd like to share, anybody to share times where they have tried to share the gospel with somebody. Has it been successful? Has it not been successful? Is there a strategy you think's best? And um, then, after, then after that, we'll kind of play into what might be one way to use Romans to share the gospel. So I'll, I'll start, and then we can, um, we can go from there. So uh, um, one example is a attending I had in residency who, um, so he, he was not a believer, but he would always encourage patients who were dying that they were going to a better place. And so um, one time at, we stepped outside the room, and I was just like, or he, he, we stepped out of the room, and he asked me if I believed that, if I believed what he said was true. And I said, yeah, I did. And um, he, he said, well, I, I, I don't. I think that's all silly. <laughs> and he said, I'm just trying to, you know, be nice and make people feel better. And so that, that launched us into this, like, long kind of conversation. And so we spent, like, 
I don't know, a couple months, at first kind of arguing, and then we like wrote letters back and forth, and he read a book, I asked him to read. It was a really good conversation. I wish that the story ended with, and then last week I baptized them, and he cried, and he thanked me, and you know, we're not there yet, but I think we do have a, a unique relationship, and I think, I think he would say he's more open now than he was when he thought he was just kind of telling his patients this noble lie that made them feel better. I think he uh, would say that there, there is some possibility that some things he thought were crazy, there may be some truth behind them. Um, so that'd be an example of a time where um, I, maybe some conversation got started because something that was just kind of routine in my, in my uh, work or whatever. Any other examples anybody want to share? It's kind of a tough question to put you on the spot about. conference in New Orleans like a year ago and uh, some friends said well let's go walk down Bourbon Street and Lauren was Lauren was with us so we, we did it just to kind of like say we did it so we're wa- walking down there's this dude in the middle of the street you know on a, like a box or whatever like preaching screaming at people and I was thinking like dude the first person this guy converts the next person this guy converts will be his first like there is no one <laughs> like nobody is interested in this guy's technique and so I think we don't want to be that because we see it's, it's not effective and it's, it's not loving, then how do we balance that with kind of wanting to be bold? Which would be questions. Um, for me, one reason that I wanted to go to a public university is really important to me to have like a strong mission field, which I think sometimes <coughs> God like overwhelms you with something you ask for, and that was definitely why I had there. So I had three different instances where I was able to really talk to somebody, all from different backgrounds, and what I think every time I ended up falling to is their lack of caring, mm-hmm. where one of them, she grew up Mormon, which I think was the most interesting situation because she knew more about the Bible than I did probably, mm-hmm. and so that was like weird and crazy, and um, the other two weren't very religious, and both times it ended up going back to they just couldn't care enough, and I couldn't get them mm-hmm. to care enough, and so that was different and interesting and great lessons, but definitely harder. That's good. Yeah, I mean, there's a parable of you know the wedding guests that are invited but they have something else to do so it's 
I've got to go see this field and I've got to sell these cattle or whatever their little excuses are. And so then eventually the, the host invites all these poor people into the wedding or whatever. And the point is, I think Anna has explained this as a, as a missionary or growing up in a missionary family, that the people that are hungry for the gospel aren't always the ones that we're around. And they aren't always the ones with other options or other opportunities. And certainly you're in college, you're focused on that. It's, you don't have time for that. A lot of times it's the people that are sort of downtrodden and, and empty that need to be filled. We all need to be filled, but we're not as aware of it when we're you know, distracted by other things. So I think people have to ask those deep and introspective questions. And I think part of why we're so unhappy as a, as a culture right now is that we are so completely distracted um, that we have no time to ask deep questions, which is really the only path by which we find something meaningful. Um, yeah. Well, you, ha- you have to be willing to hear first. Before you can believe, you have to hear. Um, and some people aren't even willing to, to do that, you know, to really listen and really hear. And I'm sure it's, it's sad. I feel like when you start talking about sharing the gospel, most people's stories are like, well, there's this time I tried. And, and, but that's like kind of, <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of like, that's my story too. It's I'm trying to do everything I can. And we, we met with a Muslim friend of mine from residency, and it seemed like it was going really well. And then it was like, Something I think like maybe health issue in his family brought his family closer together at a time where it was just like it's like okay I'm you know not interested in that anymore it's like such a bummer you know yeah well thank you guys for sharing about that uh, maybe we can talk about <clears throat> there's some other stories we, maybe we could share later like when we're not podcasting but I think sharing the gospel is such an important part of the Christian life and so that's what we want to talk about. Uh, Tonight, one way to do that. So part of the problem with sharing the gospel, I think, I think being bold is the hardest problem, right? Because there's a certain picture we have of the kind of person who's like trying to tell everyone they know about Jesus. And we kind of don't want to be that person because that's not what the cool kids do, right? That's, and so actually we, sh- we should want to be that person, but we don't want to be, right? So the, the boldness to kind of overcome the fear, to engage in like an awkward conversation, I think that's the biggest problem. But then I think the second biggest problem is actually just like a, a logistical problem. Like, so I have a relationship with Jesus in my life, but how would I like, what are the words I would say to explain what Christianity is and how you uh, can become a Christian to somebody else? And so one of the things we want to do in this Bible study is each semester we'll go through one different way to share the gospel. So, um, the, the first way we did last year was something called the five questions. So you guys may remember like the five important questions that every person who kind of examines their life would ask. Then we're gonna, uh, then there's a, a way to go through sharing the gospel from like a um, apologetics perspective, kind of how you can engage science and reason and philosophy to lead somebody to God. Tonight we're going to do the Romans road. How can we look at scripture itself to see what scripture says about the gospel? And then next semester we'll do a... Um, a thing about the Bible and prophecy, and so how Old Testament prophecy points to Jesus and how that connection uh, can be used to share the gospel. So tonight we want to hopefully give you the words. If someone's interested enough, they got a relationship with you, or for whatever reason they're willing to open a Bible, and they just say, hey, I don't really know if I'm in on all this, but tell me what it is that you believe. And so I think sometimes that's a huge important step in sharing the gospel. So Some people have regret, 
rejected Christianity. Some people have rejected the idea of Christianity because they don't know what it is. So maybe one of the things you can do, like with your Muslim friend, is we can explain to somebody what is Christianity so they know what they don't believe, right? Um, so any, that all being said, the Romans road, we got uh, five different paths on this road. So the first one, these are five verses from Romans you can use to explain uh, the gospel message. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned, that's your blank, and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're in this room right now, you are probably upper middle class to upper class, overly educated, overly informed person living a somewhat luxurious life by American standards, by international standards, a ridiculously luxurious life of comfort and safety, and you have prospects for your life to get even better because you're in professional school, at least materially better. And so you probably see the world all kind of the same way. And so I want you to think about, not from like a religious perspective, but just from like a, if you were sitting at home thinking about what is the biggest problem in the world? What's the biggest problem confronting humanity? And I think people like us, right, would give kind of similar answers. They would say um, intolerance or world hunger or hate or war or um, maybe even extreme poverty. I think all those answers are good answers. All those answers at one level or another are human problems. But I think they show the way that the culture we live in defines the way we see the world because those are not biblical answers to that question, right? So the biggest question that faces the human heart is our separation from God, right? So we talk about things that matter. If God had burdened me to live a life of, um, you know, really poor health or really extreme poverty or really loneliness, which thankfully that's not the situation I find myself in right now, those problems would not be as big as my problem of separation from Him. Because 10,000 years from now, though some of those problems are temporary and some of those problems are forever. And so here's your blank here. The greatest problem confronting us as humans is sin, is the sin that separates us from our holy and loving God. So there is a being who created the universe. And this being loves you unconditionally, and He created your heart to find its greatest fulfillment in relationship with Him. And your sin and my sin separates us from that eternal relationship. So that is the problem of humanity, is the sin that separates us from God. And that's the problem that Paul tries to answer in Romans. So David gave me this, uh, well, one of the sin verses, and then I get into chapter 5. Uh, which David loves this chapter 5 thing, so I'm sorry that I'm the one doing it, David. But um, All right, so let's move into 6.23, one of the most popular verses in Romans. But Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, I went to see, um, and I've, I've brought this up at least six times since then, but Tim Keller came to Memphis. He came to Hope Church. Was anyone there like last year? Um, so Tim Keller, I guess one of the best-known you know, Christian thinkers today, preachers. He's retired as a preacher, but uh, still writes, and he's actually really good on Twitter. He's one of probably four people on Twitter that's worth following. But he actually had a New York Times article that came out this weekend on politics and Christianity that was really good, and how maybe a two-party system doesn't really fit Christianity, which I, uh, it was a good time to hear that. Um, 
And so I'm, I'm right in line with Tim Keller 99% of the time. But he did a really good job on a sermon on giving, which is like, I feel like if you're a preacher and it's the week to give the giving sermon, you're probably a little bummed. Um, I just, it just doesn't, as I think about through all the sermons I've listened to growing up in a church, the most electric are not usually the, the giving sermon, you know, the tithing <laughs> sermon. Um, his, his sermon, though, on giving was really the gospel, which was what was so amazing about it. Um, and so he, he equated our giving to the gift that, you know, that Jesus has given us. And so uh, when you read a verse like this, he broke this actual verse down, is that the wages of sin is death. And so when you think of that, and I think it's self-evident, but to just to focus on it for a second, is, is that if, if our life is like a job, at the end of a job, so your two-week period, you get your wages, okay? And so your wages, Anna does our payroll, is the product of the number of hours you work multiplied by the amount that you've been told you would get paid, okay? Occasionally, maybe there's a bonus, but for all you know, intents and purposes, you get $647 for this two-week pay period or whatever it is, okay? That's probably not very much, but you would know better. Um, those, those are our wages. So if our life, the, the, the job that we've been performing has been sinful, then the wages, what's there on our payroll stub, is death, okay? The cough covered it up. It's death, okay? Um, he didn't want to hear that. You were trying to ignore it. Um, and I think what's, what's complicated for us is I feel like we feel that the job we're doing deserves more than that. I think that we think that the good things that we do, even the worst among us, some of us do good things, and a lot of us do really good things. We think that what we deserve for that, the work that we've been putting in, we think we deserve something more than that. Um, but it's not the case. And I think that's probably the hardest part about the gospel is that and accepting that and believing that to be true. Um, and I think believing that in breaking the law against a holy and perfect God that we deserve death for that. I think it's difficult even as I say it. But that's the point. Uh, God is the boss. He's the one that decides who gets paid what and what the wages are. And the wages he's decided are, are death. But the beauty of it is, is that God decides to make a way for us to not receive that, but I guess effectively to give us a bonus, and a bonus we did not do anything to earn. So we have bonuses in our office where we start this number of cases, we hit this production goal, and you get a bonus. But the bonus that we receive, which in this verse, it's the gift of God, and that gift is eternal life. Uh, Keller talked about it almost like an inheritance, and the fact that you don't do really anything to earn that, okay? but you still receive it anyway, okay? And so it is a free gift. So I think striking the difference in terms of what you deserve, but what you get instead um, is a really beautiful image of that. For your blanks, we have sin has a penalty on you and God has a gift for you. All right, um, and in some of this, David may have some things that he wants to add, but I'm gonna move on to 5.8. All right, so Romans 5, 8. So, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, I taught on this lesson, so this, is, I, this section definitely stood out to me. We definitely focused on it. Is uh, just thinking about, you know, it's in that same section where it talks about many of us would die for, a, you know, a good man and a, some more would die for a righteous man or whatever that the verse says there exactly. Um, and I asked the question, you know, who would die for someone that you know and love? And I think most of us were like, yeah, I would do that. How many of you would die for someone you don't know that's a good person? And everybody's like, uh, I don't know, like maybe, probably not. And then if you ask the question, well, how many of you would die for someone who's a bad person that you don't know? 
and like nobody would ever say yes to that, okay? Um, and you might even say, would you die for a bad person? You, you do know, and most of us would say, well, no. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd let him take that bullet. That, that would be the way it would end. Um, Christ died for someone that, you know, and, and infinity times over that was not good, uh, that our wages are death. That's what we deserve. That's the work that we've put in. That's what we have deserved. Um, and certainly Christ knows us, but, you know, I think in that analogy, maybe it breaks down, but, you know, I mean, it, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's not like I've shaken hands with Jesus. You know, he's doing this at a time before I'm even born. Um, so it's a real unique love that is offered there on the cross, and it's certainly a very powerful love. Um, and then it also gets personal here. So as we break this down, uh, Jesus' death, it represents several bedrock truths about you. Um, and let's just do the blanks and we'll talk about it. But God hates your sin. God loves you, regardless of anything you've done. And Jesus died for you. So David said this, and he may, he may rather say it himself, but um, I think that first statement, God hates your sin, I think that's one you could probably like have like a gut reaction of like objection to. Like why, why? And I think this is maybe one of the questions that probably would get some pushback from people as you're talking through the gospel, like, what is really so bad about my sin and the things that I do that are bad, like why is that such a big deal? And if God created the earth and he's all powerful and he's everywhere, like why does he really care that I lied or that I stole something? Um, and I think it's one of these situations where you can tell how he feels about it by what he did because of it. And so because of our sin, he sent his son to die. So obviously he hates it. You know, obviously we have that recorded that he hates sin. Um, and I think we can go through the theology of that, but it was so bad that he had to send his own son to die for it. And I think of like, what is there in this world that I would let Charlie die for? And there's basically nothing that I can think of. Um, and so what we did was so bad that God sent his son to die. I don't know if you want to expand on any of that, because I know you had some thoughts about it. No, I think that's, that's exactly right. So you think, like, does God hate sin yes look at the cross that's God's holiness on full display but does God love sinners the answer is the same it's yes look at the cross so like in this blaze of glory you see the righteousness of God this, this theme of Romans the righteousness of God will be preserved how is it preserved it's preserved in the cross God's holiness his hatred of sin God's love his love of you comes together at the cross and so so then in that point C, the little thing that's underneath it, under Jesus died for you, there's what's called the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the blank there is exchanged, but his righteousness was exchanged for your sin. And um, I mean, again, it kind of goes back to this whole thing. If we have on one hand the wages of, of the, the work we've put in, what we deserve. On the other hand, we have this free gift or this inheritance that we did nothing to earn. We did not earn it. It's a, a purely free gift, and there's nothing we could ever do to earn that inheritance or that gift. And it was, in a sense, those two things were exchanged. But in that exchange, something had to happen. Um, and so that's, that's, again, kind of what's known as the great exchange in that verse in 2 Corinthians. All right, Mr. David. Okay, so if we're just talking through, like, what is the gospel through Romans, we got this idea of our sin that separates us from God, Jesus' role in being our substitute. So we exchange our sin that separates us from God for Jesus' righteousness. So that all occurs 
But then there's a question like, so what does that mean for me? How does, that, how does any of these historical events, these um, theological, this theological system, how does that apply to me? So here's our response. So Romans 10, verse 9, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So I think that has something about the, the response that we should have. It has something to do with what we say and what we believe it has something to do with the resurrection. So why does the resurrection matter? So this is, the, remember, Jesus is crucified for blasphemy, for claiming to be God, right? And so in that moment, sin conquers him. So he's, he, all our sin is, is dead in the cross, and death conquers him. Jesus is swallowed up by death, right? But then the resurrection happens, and Jesus rises from the dead. So like this verse in 2 Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? Right, that Jesus has conquered sin and death, and so that's why believing in the resurrection has always been, from the very beginning, that has been the defining belief of what it means to be a Christian. So we talked about last week: what are primary beliefs? What are secondary beliefs? What are tertiary beliefs? Primary belief always: this is what the martyrs died for. Right? The martyrs were willing to be eaten by lions, burned alive, because they said Jesus rose from the dead, and I saw him. Right, and I believe it, and so that's a primary basic belief of what it means to be a Christian. So you are offered salvation in Jesus. Everybody is offered salvation in Jesus. Which brings us to the next verse, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is offered to every, that's your blank, every person on the planet who calls on his name. This is a big theme for Paul. Remember, Paul's writing to this church in Rome, which had these kind of ethnic divisions, right? It used to be primarily a Jewish church, then the Jews were expelled, now it's a, then it became a Gentile church, then a Nero let the Jews come back into Rome, so now it's kind of an ethnic mix. And so there's this question of like, who are God's people? And a, a big kind of theological theme for Paul and, and for us is that everybody is God's people. Everyone on the planet, no matter what color you are, no matter what race you are, no matter what gender you are, no matter how, no matter how much school you've gone to, no matter how much school you haven't gone to, no matter what your IQ is, I mean, there's no um, quality about you as a human that can separate you from God's offer to, to be His child, to be in family with Him. So then I think, then this is like the huge question. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Right? That is the theological question that I think we're kind of left with. So Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think a surface level reading of this would be something like, I, do I just yell out the name Jesus like in the, in the vacuum of the night and then I'm saved, I'm united with God? And I think there's something to this kind of immediate acceptance of the gospel, this immediate acceptance of the story of Jesus, of saying, Jesus, you are mine, you're my Lord, I'll follow where you um, have commanded me to go. You can be my Lord. But then what does that mean? If, if, if calling on the name of the Lord is accepting Jesus as Lord of your life, what are the commandments He's given us to live a life of obedience to Him? So I think a huge problem in the church today, there's a lot of kind of... <clears throat> conversation in the news about what is an evangelical and how do evangelicals behave and what, are the, what do evangelicals believe. I think part of the problem is somehow we came up with this kind of American cultural Christianity that means if you say you're an evangelical or if you say you're a Christian or if you say the name Jesus, 
that you're a Christian. And that is not biblical. That is not the, what the Bible says it means to be a Christian. And so I think it's maybe relevant, especially in 2018, and, and a lot of the stuff is going on in our culture, that we think through, if I say that Jesus is Lord of my life, if I say that I will follow Him and obey the, um, the authority He claims on my life and give that to Him, what does that mean? So I think it means a lot of things, but I think there's kind of five basic things that that, that would mean. The first would be this idea of belief. We're not going to read these verses. We're kind of running along. I encourage you and you kind of maybe your Bible study this week to look at them and not just take my word for it. But uh, part of being a Christian means believing. I think that's there's some, some history there. How does the Holy Spirit work in your heart to 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 make you a believer? Is it a choice? Um, how does election work? And we you know we kind of uh, didn't answer all those questions, but argued about it a few weeks ago. But there's something about Christians believe the gospel, especially that Jesus rose from the dead. Second is this idea of repentance. So what does repentance mean? Repentance means to turn. So I know all of us at different times in our life have been involved in, diff- in sin of different levels. So you are not a Christian if there's a sin in your life that you are unwilling to, to wrestle with and attempt to turn away from. It, this does not mean Christians don't sin, but if there's a sin in your life that you're happily engaging in repeatedly, have no remorse for and no intention of, of turning away from, you are not a Christian. Okay, so those are harsh words. You know, those are kind of words that make you raise your eyebrows and think funny. But I, I mean, don't take my word for it. Like Jesus, like this, sometimes you get in trouble in church for like quoting Jesus, right? So Jesus says some things that are like not politically correct. But Jesus said this, right? Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will inherit the kingdom. That that should give us pause, right? If I think that my eternal security is safe because I said the right word, or signed a card, or walked down an aisle. That, that is not biblical. That's some other idea that someone, uh, you know, some preacher somewhere came up with and has kind of been passed around, but that's not what the Bible says, right? So this idea that you can become a Christian and don't have to change the way you live, that is not the gospel. It's also not the gospel to say you've done something that you can't repent of, or there, there's this part about your character that, that limits you from being God's people. That's not the gospel either. So step three is repent. Our step two is repent. Um, the third idea, I shouldn't call them steps, the third idea is confession. And this isn't confession of sin. That's kind of more repentance is turning from sin. This is confession that Jesus is Lord and he, and he rose from the dead. So you want to confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he conquered sin and death in the resurrection. So that, that what they call the great confession, the good confession, um, that is something that's part of what it means to call the name of the Lord. The fourth idea is this idea of baptism. So I think it's interesting. So, so who wrote Romans? Paul, right? So Paul at one time was not a Christian, right? And then, and then Paul became a Christian. So you guys remember the story, right? He's like on the road to Damascus, has this like blinding moment. Then he's um, taken away. He can't see for a few days. God sends somebody to him to tell him the gospel. And then Paul believes the gospel and says, what should I do? And uh, God's missionary says, Arise and be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. So for Paul, who wrote Romans, part of what calling on the name of the Lord meant was to arise and be baptized. And so, you know, there's some tension exactly like where sequentially should we line baptism up with belief and like what order. And I don't really want to get into that tonight. We can maybe talk about that some other time. But it... Suffice to say, the public confession of faith 
and the washing, the symbolic washing of your sins away in the waters of baptism, that is part of what it means to be a Christian. And the idea that like you would be a Christian and baptized it would would be very confusing to the New Testament Christians. In fact, like when you follow some of their arguments, like in Galatians and even earlier in Romans, Paul doesn't argue for baptism as much as he argues since baptism. So Paul doesn't say things like, you should be baptized because XXX. He says, since you've been baptized, this is true. And so Paul, just the basic assumption of what it means to be a Christian is that you've been baptized. And so part of calling on the name of the Lord is to call on the name of the Lord the way that Paul did, to, to be baptized. And then finally is this idea of faithfulness. And again, I don't want to like confront this idea like once saved, always saved. If you believe that, I think you're a Christian. Some, maybe one day a week I believe that. I mean, I, th- I think there's something to assurance of salvation, how's that, how that plays out in the Christian life. What I want to say is this, though. This idea that it doesn't matter how you live, that you can betray Christ with your behavior, that, that there's no God has no authority on your life to live a holy life, um, that you can that you can live a life of unrepentant sin that's unwilling to sacrifice uh, the way that so many other Christians have sacrificed for uh, the name of Jesus. That's not Christianity. So I, I'd say another part of calling on the name of the Lord is to commit your life to faithfulness. And so this idea in, in, in Revelation, um, um, John talks about remaining faithful unto death. So if you're faithful unto death, um, you receive the crown of glory. That's what idea in, in Revelation 2 is. So look at those verses and think about um, are, are we living and believing a culturally easy Christianity? And maybe not in this room, uh, at least I hope not, but I think a lot of problems with kind of the, the broader cultural view of what Christians are and how, what we believe and how we behave is because so many people in the world have defined themselves as Christians when their life has no fruit of having called on the name of the Lord. And so I also think it's a reasonable question to ask yourself, have you called on the name of the Lord? And I hope the answer is yes, but it's, if the answer is no, it's okay. The reason it's okay is like, we're here right now. Like, let's call on the name of the Lord. Right? Let's, let's commit to being the kind of people that do that. And um, let's commit to being the kind of people that are persuaded that it's important enough to do that, that we want to share it strategically and as it's appropriately uh, with people who have. Great. All right, so I want to wrap up real quick. I know it's a little late, but we had dinner. It was good. So, you know. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of coming back to this, this suicide thing, I know that's, again, kind of an odd start, but the reason we start with it is because as medical students, as dental students, as et cetera, et cetera, you're going to deal with a lot of stress, a lot of depression. When you get out of medical school, it might seem like that will end. <laughs> Life will be much easier. But in fact, it'll be just as hard, if not harder, in certain ways. And that is sort of the story of life, the, the continual wheel of struggle and depression and self-pity and just things not going the way that you'd like for them to go. And no matter how wealthy you are, how successful you are, you will still find ways to be unhappy. Okay, um, And so I don't think our answer to that is to distract ourselves with cat videos or even pictures of our kids. Um, I think at best those are temporary solutions. I think the best solution is the gospel. I think it's the gospel that God, te- you know, God tells us, and we read through the New Testament, that life will be difficult. Like, that's guaranteed. But in that, we should be thankful, in the sense, that, that Jesus has provided a, a gateway for us, has provided a, um, a way out of this cycle. 
Um, and so I think whatever we could possibly tell someone on a cultural level, whatever 200-page book we could share with someone that explains you know, how to find purpose or happiness or joy or presence or peace in life, that none of that will matter anything compared to what the gospel could tell them, uh, what the good news could tell them, that even though we deserve death because of our sin, that Jesus has provided a solution for us. Um, that should be seen as good news, but it's only good news if we realize that there's bad news, which we talk about pretty often. Um, and I do think it's important to share the good news, and that's why we will bring this up again, as David said, four times in different ways, just to maybe kind of get your mind thinking, well, just like in medical school, you learn all these things, and it's like, well, what am I going to do with this? Well, that's why they have you start, you know, working with patients and to try and see, well, this is why I needed to know this, and this is why it's useful. Certainly some of that won't ever be useful. But, um, and so I think as you think about the gospel, it's, it's always relational. I don't think that the guy standing on the milk carton usually does a lot of good. I, I, you know, I feel for that guy because I feel like he is convinced or she is convinced, typically it's a guy, okay, that he's doing something useful because he thinks it's important. I don't know if that's the right method or the right medium. I think typically sharing the gospel starts with conversation and relationship. So every example that was given tonight was that, except for the one time on Bourbon Street, which you said it wasn't working. Um, I think it includes listening to people, letting them talk. I think it also includes getting help when you don't have the answers and not feeling like you have to have all the answers. The Romans Road could be a path by which you lead someone to that truth and to that realization, and it might be something else. Um, but I think we have to be looking for those opportunities. And I think we have to know and we have to express to people that Jesus is the only thing that will fill that hole that exists inside of all of us. There's a problem with us and the only instrument that can fix it is the gospel. Um, it's like trying to open this can earlier. I couldn't do it. Okay, And so in that way, we are like a can that cannot be opened until someone provides the right instrument. Uh, and that's the gospel. And man, I could have tried and I would have failed over and over. Um, and so I think knowing that, knowing that there's people that are around us that are sad and are hurting, we should be compelled to want to share this information if we believe that it's going to make a difference. And certainly I do. So um, I encourage you to kind of share those things and, and maybe use this as sort of a jumping off point to be more bold about it and maybe have some, uh, have a method that you may not have before. So uh, let's end there. Okay, so that is it for our, our Romans series. Uh, it's been a great few weeks going through all those chapters together and then tonight with the Romans Road. We'll be back next week with a uh, series on Christian disciplines. Um, this is going to be called Following the King. We're going to talk about how to read the Bible, how to pray, and then how to make disciples. And uh, that's going to be great and sort of follows up a really you know heavy theological study with now certainly a more practical sort of Christian discipline series, and I think you'll enjoy it. After that, we'll be into a uh, worldview series, and then we'll just keep moving throughout the rest of the year. So uh, thank you for listening. We really enjoy uh, all the feedback that we get. We've been getting quite a few more listens on this podcast. Um, you know, we're not breaking the top 10 or anything, but we have been getting more lesson, or listens, I think maybe with this Roman series in particular. So that's, uh, you know, definitely a good thing. Um, if you're in the Memphis area and you're a medical or dental student, definitely feel free to come learn with us and hang out with us Monday night, 630 in my home in Germantown. And uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week on the MDDDS podcast. Thanks so much. See you soon. Bye-bye.